seminar today, this evening, is fifth evening of our retreat. Hopefully uh, you've all been gaining something from this retreat. Some people more peace of mind than they've had before. Others maybe just understanding a little bit more about Buddhism and the Buddha's teachings. There's a question here, a series of questions. Number one, how did your family react to your decision of becoming a monk? And how are they reacting now? Well, I've been a monk 27 years, I've been in the monastery 28, 28 or so years. So I've hope, I hope they've calmed down by now. Otherwise, they've been suffering a long time. Um, probably many of you have heard me talk about this before, but because there's the question, I'll just recap. When I uh, started to think about becoming a monk was uh, the time when I left high school before I went to university, but because I didn't yet have much experience of Buddhism, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do if I wanted to be a monk, what that would involve and where. So I thought I would wait and uh, gather more information and start practicing the Buddhist teachings in my daily life and try to find out more about the life of a monk. So I went to university in Bristol, on the west of England, where very luckily they had a Buddhist meditation group which was very well attended regularly. So I joined that and learned to meditate. And I read a lot of Buddhist books and I started keeping precepts and just um, made my commitment to the teachings firmer, stronger, until uh, one of my meditation teachers recommended traveling to Thailand to find uh, a meditation master. He didn't say who, he just suggested to go and find a, a teacher in Thailand. So I did between my second and third year of uni. In my long vacation, I traveled to Thailand and was fortunate to hear about Ajahn Chah. And I went to stay at uh, the International Forest, Forest Monastery, Wat Nana Chat. And it only took me three days to make my decision to become a monk or to train as a monk because I had a few doubts. The first day my doubt was what's it like 
keeping eight precepts, not eating in the evening. Because I hadn't, um, or I had done that before, but I hadn't done it in a monastery. And I was just wondering to do that every day, would that be a problem? So after the first day or two, I realized it's not a problem at all because there was enough food and the food one gets gives one enough strength. And in the evening, it's actually quite pleasant not having to eat or cook or wash up and one can set all that aside and just get on with meditation. So that was my first doubt and I quickly overcame that. My second doubt was, will I be able to get up every morning at 3 a.m. with the wake-up bell, come and meditate? Was, uh, at that time, I used to get up 6.30, 7 a.m., and I already thought I was very good doing that. So 3 a.m. was quite a challenge. But, it was again, it was easier than I thought uh, Thailand is very nice at 3 a.m. It's cool, quiet. The forest is quiet. Forest in Thailand is normally very noisy, hot, humid. But at 3 a.m. it's very nice. So it's quite pleasant getting up early, walking to the meditation hall, meditating, and there were others doing that as well. So after again, after the first day or two, my doubt about that um, passed away. I did ask one monk, there was a German monk who had been there many years, I said, do you get up every morning at this time? He said, yeah. I said, have you had any ill effects from this? He said, no. I said, okay. And that was the end, no more doubts. The last, the third doubt was based around... Um, the weekly practice of all night meditation on the holy day in Thai it's called one prat monk day where people come into the monastery like yourselves after work and start their evening practice maybe 7 p.m. with meditation chanting listen to a talk or a few talks and meditate right through until dawn the next day. And many of those lay people go off and work again the next day. They go without rest or have absolutely very little rest and then work again the next day. Um, and the monks also, they stay up all night meditating, mostly sitting, but you're allowed to walk meditation as well, but you're not allowed to go back to your kuti your hut, your hut, your sleeping place. You had to stay up and in the central area of the monastery. So I had some concern because, I, as I mentioned before, when I began meditating, I couldn't sit for very long. It's too much pain. Uh, by the time I went to visit Ajahn Chah, I had learned to sit for 45 minutes comfortably and an hour maximum. Uh, after an hour it was just torture so I couldn't sit for more than an hour so uh, on the third day in the monastery it was the all night sitting 
and that began at seven. We sat for an hour, and then it was the chanting, which lasted a long time. And then we had a break, and then there was a Dhamma talk, started about nine or so, and you sit. And so already by 9.15, my legs were just in agony. Uh, but I determined to sit through the end of the Dhamma talk out of respect for the Dhamma and the teacher, even though I didn't understand a single word of it. It was in Thai. So I just sat there with my painful body. So it was quite a difficult Dhamma talk to listen to. Um, but I gained something, I gained some endurance and not much peace gained some endurance and then luckily when the Dhamma talk finished we were allowed to either sit or walk so I had no choice my, I was so in so much pain and the sitting on concrete no nice carpet or cushions like this sitting on concrete so I got up and started walking at about I don't know, quarter to ten, ten o'clock whenever the talk finished and the morning chanting didn't start until 4 a.m. So I thought, what am I going to do? I can't sit anymore, too much pain. So I just walked. So I walked five or six hours nonstop, back and forth on the side of the hall um, and didn't stop because I wanted to see if I could go the whole night meditating. Uh, and I did actually get quite peaceful doing that as well. So I was quite happy about that. <laughs> um, then we did the morning chanting. It all finished about 5 a.m. And I had my last doubt was if I become a monk and I meditate all night, then a monk has to go out on arms round, Bindabhat, into the village. And that lasts maybe an hour or so, walking around villages, a few kilometers walk, come back, uh, you wait a while, then you eat your meal. You don't get to get back to your hut for a possible rest until maybe you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. So I just thought, well, would I be able to do all of that just like the other monks? So I thought I'd better follow them. So you're allowed to follow the monks on Bindabar. We're wearing white with a shaved head. So I followed them across the fields and through the villages and that was also torture because in those days it was all gravel ro roads with very sharp stones and my feet were soft because I didn't walk barefoot in England and like most of the western monks you just walk along going <laughs> every step was painful until you went into the paddy fields which was just muddy and wet full of d buffalo dung and that was pleasant uh, e even stepping on buffalo dung was better than stepping on the gravel road but there was a lot of gravel roads to walk the worst of all was the driveway to the monastery it had chippings like specially expensive chippings from the quarry that just so sharp and it's like you just every step painful I can still remember the pain, it's very clear in my memory. Um, anyway, I walked around the village, got back to the gate of the monastery and 
just as I reached the gate, I said, well, I can do everything that's required. I knew in my mind I could do it all. So at the gate of the monastery, I made my uh, vow. I said, well, okay, when I finish my degree, because I had one more year of my uni degree, I'll come back here and become a monk uh, indefinitely. I didn't put a time limit on it, just said indefinitely, because I'm sure I can do everything that a monk is required to do or at least I can have a go. And I stayed in the monastery about three months and then went back to the UK and arrived back with my shaven head, no eyebrows, wearing white. And uh, the very first day I arrived back, uh, I went with my family. We have a house in Wales because my ancestors are all from Wales. We went to, the, to Wales, so I went from Thailand to London to Wales. And uh, that evening, my sister, my brother and sister, took me out to the local bar, the local pub. I didn't drink, but I still went with them. Um, I walked into the pub in a very small Welsh village with all my whites and my shaven head and no eyebrows. And when I walked into the pub, the entire place stopped. And everyone turned and looked at me. Yeah. All these old guys propping up the bar with their pint of beer, they all stopped and looked. And the barman sort of looked, jaw dropped. Everybody turned and looked at me. And then someone said, must be a spaceman. <laughs> Because in those days, not many people had shaven heads without eyebrows uh, like we do now. It's much more fashionable now. In those days, it was more uncommon. And that was a sort of reaction I got whenever I told anyone, I'm going back to Thailand to become a monk. They all thought I was a bit alien or strange or crazy. Uh, I went back to uni and all my university professors shook their heads. <laughs> They didn't think it was a good idea. Uh, they just didn't understand what on earth, why would somebody want to become a Buddhist monk and do all this studying and then just go and live in the forest. And, you know, they'd say, well, how does a Buddhist monk live? How do you earn your living? You know, how do you survive? Say, we have an arms bowl and you go out every morning and they put sticky rice and chili into your arms bowl. You come back and you eat that. What else? Do you have any money? No, no money. Can you get married? No, can't get married. Can you drive? No. What can you do? Meditate. Mm -hmm. That was it. And they just said, no. They just wrote me off as a kind of a, a lost cause. And my friend, the friend who had gone to Thailand with me on that trip, he didn't want to become a monk, but he, he, he was also interested in Buddhism. Uh, his father, he asked me, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to become a Buddhist monk in Thailand. He just turned his back on me. He didn't even look at me. He turned his back and announced to everyone, he said, well, that's the end of him. <laughs> that's the last I ever saw of him. <laughs> Other people said all kinds of quite rude things and uh, nobody was very supportive. Other, my sister was because she accepted me. <laughs> Uh, but very few other people 
were supportive because they just didn't understand what I was doing. They didn't understand Buddhism because it was so new in those days. Not many people knew about Buddhism or the Buddhist teachings. Not many people had been to Thailand. So everyone thought, oh, what a strange thing to do. But that didn't put me off because I, in my heart I knew, well, this is something very good to do and I didn't doubt that. And I understood, well, they don't understand because they just haven't had any experience of Buddhist monks and what they do. So, of course, my parents didn't understand. They were expecting me to go off and get a job, and like everyone else. So I said, well, I am getting a job. It's just the uniform is a bit different, and there's very low pay. <laughs> and they said, what will you do when you get old? Who will look after you? I said, no, I don't know. Maybe I'll just die in the forest. And they go, no, no. Uh, so when the day came to leave England, um, it didn't dawn on them until I started giving away everything that I owned. Um, and I had a few possessions. I had a motorbike, so I gave that away. I had a very expensive electric guitar and amplifier, which I gave away and, and sold. And uh, that's when it really hit them. Or oh, if he gives away his guitar, he must be serious. And gave away all my clothes, so I only had a few things left. Then it dawned on them, he's serious, he's really going, he's really going to give this a go. So the day I... They, I left, I actually went with my sister, she accompanied me to Thailand because she realized it might be a long time before she saw me again. And uh, so she wanted to send me off to the monastery to all the way to Thailand, it was very kind of her. So my father took us to the airport and at the airport, London airport, he cried because he realized he wouldn't see me for a long time. Uh, my mother was thinking, she was saying, he'll be back in six months. I guess she was hoping that, or thought maybe it was just a craze or a phase I was going through. So she didn't cry yet. So only later, after six months, when I didn't return, then she started to get a bit agitated and not very happy about my decision. And because I was in Thailand, she was in England, she couldn't really uh, understand what I was doing very clearly. So for a few years she was a bit unhappy about the whole thing. And uh, in those days there's no telephone, couldn't phone them, so I just wrote letters once in a while, tell them what I'm doing. Uh, as I said, my sister sent me off to the airport and she came to Thailand, came and stayed in the monastery, then I sent her back to Bangkok. We went down to Bangkok to the airport to send her back to the UK. And she knew in her heart, oh, I'm not going to see him for a long time because uh, we'd talked about it. So at the airport, she collapsed with uh, sadness and uh, quite a memorable scene. Uh, just parting ways at the place where you check your passport before you go into there. And you know, most people are sort of saying goodbye, goodbye. And she just burst out crying, going, no. 
And then she fell on the ground. She was so weak in her knees, she just fell on the ground crying. So I had to go on the ground and uh, assist her, bring her up and hug her. And so the whole airport, Don Mueang Airport, stopped. And all these people circled around us as though something important was going on. They were all looking. And all the security guards and the air stewards and people, what's going on? <laughs> looking at us. And my sister was just crying very loudly, lots of tears streaming. So I had to be very calm and just say, it's going to be all right, I'll keep in touch. Then she went off and I had to go to uh, get the overnight bus to Ubon. Went to uh, Dalat Morchit, got on a very cheap bus because I had no money left. I was completely broke. As soon as I got on the bus, it started moving out of Morchit bus station and I started crying. It took about an hour for me to stop crying. But that was probably the last time I cried about leaving my family behind after that. I didn't worry too much about it. I just shared the merits of my practice with them and trusted that doing that, the goodness of, of this life requires so much commitment to be a monk. You have to keep the rules, you have to meditate, you have to give up a lot. I was sure doing that is something very good. I can send that merit to my parents and that's more valuable than anything else I could do for them. You, know, you can't buy merit. You can only make merit through your actions. And so I just stuck with that. was confident what I was doing was good and the goodness would reach them as well, even though they're living in another country. So it took about, I don't know how many years, maybe 10 years before they started to accept what I was doing, calm down a little bit. and uh, They visited Thailand many times and took them around, visit Ajahn Chah in hospital, visit other teachers, get them blessed, listen to the Dhamma. And so after a few visits, they started to understand a bit more what it's all about. They could see that I was uh, still alive because they would get news that, like, you know, in those days there was still a little bit of conflict on the border with Cambodia and Laos. Said, so read a news article 500 Thai soldiers killed in Ubon. Oh, my son is in Ubon. There must be a war going on. In fact, there wasn't really a war going on, it's just a little bit of a border conflict. But they would uh, get worried think that maybe something happened to me or their friends would say, oh, maybe you'll get malaria. Uh, maybe this will happen, maybe that will happen. So I never told them anything that happened that was um, difficult. I just told them the good news. I said, oh, yeah, it's very peaceful in the forest, very happy. <laughs> um, so that they wouldn't worry. And then they came to visit and they saw how we did live and they started to understand more. So now my parents are very uh, at peace with what I do. And my mother now goes to the temple in England all the time. And she meditates and offers dana and listens to talks. And she seems to gain a lot from Dhamma practice. She's 81 years old. And so... You know, the question, how are they reacting now? Well, I think they're quite happy. 
Um, the only one thing they're probably not that happy about is that I'm living here in Australia and they're living in England a long way, but um, can't do much about that. But luckily we have telephones and other means of communication these days, so we can still keep in touch. Any regrets on that decision? Uh, the only regret I have is that I didn't do it quicker, that I wasted time out in the world. <laughs> Other than that, no regrets. What would be your advice to a young man whose family says the first time is right, or says the time is right to get married, <laughs> but the heart says to become a monk? and he is not sure whether he is ready for either as yet. Well, I'm biased, I'd say go for it as a monk. Uh, leave marriage for the next life, or the last life, or whatever. Um, but as I say, I'm biased. Um, obviously, it's much easier to try the monk's life if you're not married. Um, when they're married, people do still become monks or nuns, but it's harder, isn't it? You've got more responsibility, more, more things you have to concern yourself with. So if you're free and single, then that's the time to try the monk's life if you're at all interested. And don't waste time. Don't spend too much time doubting and wondering. Just give it a go because it's something you can do and you can leave any time. It's not like you're stuck once you become a monk. If you decide it's not for you, well, you can always return to lay life. So while you have the chance and you're, you're enthusiastic, well, give it a go. Many people are surprised when they become a monk you know, how much happiness they get from the life. At first they're worried, is it going to be difficult? But once they settle down, they realize how good the life is and how much good karma they're making. Like in Thailand, I remember there's one man, he came to the monastery, his son, the day of his graduation, he was an older man, his son was about 22, 23 years old, and he graduated as an architect. And they had a graduation ceremony, and then that night he went out with his friends, driving along the expressway in Bangkok, and they went straight into a lamppost, and his son died in a car crash the day of his graduation. So the parents were heartbroken and the father thought, you know, worked all these years, he was a, built up a business, he's an engineer, and his wife was an architect, worked all these years, built up our business, all for our children, still had one daughter left. Now the son has died, it's like, why do we do all this, what's the point? So he thought, hmm, this is the time to think more deeply about life. So he decided to become a monk for three months, temporary monk, and dedicate the merit to his son, share the merit with his son who had died. At the end of three months, he was so happy, so peaceful, he said, I'm not ready to go back. And his wife was uh, running her business and so that she had enough income. And do the daughter uh, went to uni in America and they had enough income and support for her. So he thought, okay, I'll stay on as a monk. And his three months extended and it became six years. 
And because he was a, an engineer, an architect and businessman, in those six years he did an awful lot of good karma helping to build a number of monasteries, design buildings, build them, oversee building projects in different monasteries. And it was very, very peaceful. And when it time to came to go back, he didn't really want to go back to the lay life, but he felt he still had some responsibility towards his wife and his daughter, so he did return to the lay life. As many people I know like that who have tried out the monk's life thinking they'll just do it for a few months or a short time and end up maybe for their whole life even or at least for a long period. Last question. When will be the next meditation retreat? Ah. As Ajahn Chah would say, Mainair. Not sure. We would like to have Nuns Forest Monastery. What can we do about it? Go and buy some land. Any nuns become Arahant? Yes, we've heard of a few. In the time of the Buddha, many. If you read the lives of the famous nuns in the time of the Buddha, many Arahants. Uh, many sodapanas, even lay women like Wisaka and others, practice very well in the time of the Buddha. Since the time of the Buddha, um, in the modern era, living in Thailand, one gets to know of, hear of a few Buddhist uh, nuns who have become enlightened. The famous one probably is Mechi Gel. We've given her biography away before here, the translation. She was a disciple of Ajahn Man. And she was very committed. You know, if you want to become an Arahant, you, know, you have to give up everything. She, like other Arahants, would say, you, know, you have to be ready to die for the Dhamma meaning you don't hold on to anything, you don't worry about anything, you give your life to the Dhamma, to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, to the practice. So if you're thinking of becoming a nun or starting a nun's monastery or anything, you know, that's my recommendation is you have to be ready to give up to the Dhamma, die for the Dhamma. Um, or if you haven't reached Nibbana yet, well, to at least die trying. And that's what a monk and nun or a nun should be thinking. Say, well, I'm just going to give myself to the Dhamma even if I haven't reached Arahant yet. As long as I die trying, then that's okay. There's no real point in doing anything else, is there? If you think about it, you have to just commit to the practice and be ready to give up everything. So Meiji Gao, if you read her biography, you can see how how an unpractices. And she, once she started meditating, she took refuge in her teacher Ajahn Man and his disciples. So she's very respectful and uh, listened to the teacher, the teacher's instructions. The teacher would say, "Don't meditate." She would stop because when she was very young, still a teenager, she started meditating. Ajahn Man didn't think she 
was wise enough to meditate on her own yet. So he said, don't meditate yet, wait. So she did, she listened. And at many times in her practice, you know, she had stubborn reactions in her mind to different aspects of the training, to the teacher. Uh, but she re- always realized, if you read her own words, you know, any stubbornness is a kilesa, it's an attachment that we have to let go of. So she's very good at letting go of her own attachments, seeing them, letting go of them. And she was very, very energetic. You know, she would sometimes walk meditation all night long. Even in the rain, wouldn't stop. She would meditate for many hours, walking, sitting, just gave herself to the practice. And if you want to overcome your own defilements, that's what you have to do. You have to give up for the practice. And most of us do it in a kind of a bargain, you know, sort of, I'll do a bit tonight, and then I'll have a bit of relaxing time with friends and stop. Maybe next week I'll do a little bit more. We have this kind of bargain going on, constantly negotiating. How much am I going to meditate today? Oh, yesterday I did it a lot. I'll tell you today a little bit less. So, you know, when it comes to taking food, or yesterday I was really mindful. Oh, today I'm just going to eat a lot. You know, we tend to have that kind of half-half bargain kind of attitude to our practice and that's not how an arahant or one destined to become an arahant practices we have to learn to be much firmer in our commitment but you can't force that you have to work at it bring it up reflecting on dhamma listening to dhamma until you're so fed up with your own kalesas that you want to let go of them and you want to teach yourself to let go of them and nothing else matters now Meiji girl you know she, like most women she very uh tied down by the culture. She wanted to be a nun from a very young age. She just wanted to practice meditation, be in a monastery, listen to her teachers. But then, of course, the family wants her to be a wife and a mother and look after the house. And she was caught between the two. So after many years of nagging her husband, he allowed her to go off for just three months' rains retreat, Kalpansar stay in the monastery. At the end of the rains retreat, you know, she had to go back, cooking, looking after the family. And what she did, she was so determined to be a nun that she kept her nun's robes on and just put her ordinary clothes over the top. So the mind of a nun, but externally going back to being a housewife and a mother, well, a wife. And Her husband, you know, that his mind was totally in a different plane from hers. He's just thinking about the ordinary things, making money, having kids, building up the family, which is nothing unusual about that. She's just thinking about meditating, letting go, renouncing, renouncing the world. And so naturally there was a lot of conflict there until eventually she she couldn't take it anymore. She, she said, I've got to go. And her husband flew into a rage and sort of kicked her out of the house. And her brother came and kind of interceded to protect her. Maybe she was going to get hit by the husband, I don't know. But um, she managed to to go and he just said, go and never come back. (laughs) He wasn't very supportive. 
So she had to go through a lot just to get to become a, monk, a nun. She had to give up a lot and go through a lot of hardship. Then once she became a nun, you know, nuns, especially in that day and age, in 1930s, 1940s, it's almost 100 years ago now, you know, very few requisites, very poor, the food was very simple, nobody would you know, donate money in those days. So they just had to get by with very simple food, grass roof huts, very little comfort and convenience. Uh, because she had made a lot of good karma in the past with these teachers like Ajahn Man, Ajahn Mahabur, they looked after her and her group of nuns. They helped send them food and requisites from the, the monks' monastery and gave them teachings. And so eventually, putting up with a lot of difficulty, she became an arahant. And if you go to Ajahn Mahabur's monastery, or now you can go to her own monastery, because she had her own monastery in later years, they built a chedi for her relics, and her relics, her bones are now they've crystallized. You go to Ajahn Mahabur's, you can see on the shelf, they've got the crystal relics of Meiji Gel. You know, her bones, because of the purity of the mind, the sila, the samadhi, the panya, over time, the bones have turned to crystal. That's you know that's usually how we say uh, that's the confirmation that somebody's an arahant. So a lady can do it, a man can do it. It's all about commitment to the dhamma, being willing to give up everything for the dhamma. If you're not willing to give up something, then that's your sticking point, isn't it? That's your attachment. That's where you're going to have to keep working because that's what will pull you back to the world and pull you back to more suffering. If you're will, willing to let go of everything, give up everything, then you've got a chance. And there's a few other notable nuns, who some who've been translated into English. as Kao Suan Luang is another one who's got many books in English. She lived in Radbury. Um, her name was Upasika Gi. She was almost blind or was blind in the end of her life and she had a large community of nuns living with her and you can still listen to her Dhamma talks they're in Thai but very simple but very direct Dhamma teachings um, and you can read the books some of which have been translated into English so she's another famous teacher is that all the nuns in her monastery were scared of her because she was so tough. And she could sit all night. She was very, very mindful. She didn't waste her time with idle chatter or gossip. Very direct in what she said. Very, very frugal. She had her, her main requisite was a half a coconut that she used for her bowl to eat in, to eat her food. And when she had a bath in the afternoon, she would use that same half coconut to scoop the water over her for her bath. And that was her main sort of thing she had. She had almost nothing else, just had a few clothes and a few items. So she very, lived very simply, very wise, very mindful, very determined in the practice. So all the nuns, she had a large group with her, they were all very respectful of her and, and 
afraid of her because she was so committed to the Dhamma. Same as Meiji Gao. And there's many other Buddhist nuns, I can't name them here, but who I've met and heard of. But one thing you notice is that those nuns who seem to be very dedicated to Dhamma, they're very private and they don't, you don't, don't get to hear about them unless you know somebody who knows them. You, know, you can go to say like one time went to Lumpur Ginnery's monastery. Lumpur Ginnery was one of the monks who taught Ajahn Chah. It's one of his teacher, teachers. So one time we went on a pilgrimage to visit his monastery and stay the night. And there were about five nuns staying there. And you know, nobody outside of that village probably knows of those nuns. You know, they're not at all famous, but the senior nun, who's about 70 years old, she was Lumpur Ginnery's niece. And she was considered to be, if not enlightened, but on, very close on the way to becoming enlightened. And she just lived very privately. She didn't give teachings, she just lived in the monastery. She did teach the other nuns who lived with her, but she didn't go out giving Dhamma talks or, you know, she hasn't got her name on the internet or anything like that. Just lived very, very quietly because she's dedicated to the Dhamma, living very simply, meditating every day for many hours. Even though she's 70 years old, you know, she didn't sleep very much. She'd meditate when she, in the morning, she'd get up very, very early, 2 or 3 a.m., when she finished the morning meditation, still go off and cook food that they could offer to monks. So there's many nuns you get to meet if you do travel around the forest monasteries of Thailand, and they're often very, very shy, quiet. Um, but because people get to know them, and maybe teachers who are enlightened can say, oh, this nun, she practices well. She, they can sort of confirm that they practice well. Well, in, in the circle of forest monks and nuns, then they get to be known for their practice. But outside of that, you know, people just don't know who they are because they live very privately, quietly. How important is a super practice in loosening our attachment to this body and lessening concern about fear and injury to the body? I find the visualization of body parts hard work and seem to gravitate to watching the breath. Probably just laziness. Any more comments or advice? to combat the laziness. It's not necessarily laziness, it can be, but the development of insight through contemplating the body, whether it's a super practice or contemplating the 32 parts or developing the perception of unattractiveness in the body or contemplating the body as a corpse. This is uh, like the breath, it's both a practice of tranquility meditation, just learning to focus the mind, concentrate the mind on the body. And it's also a 
practice of wisdom. So one comes out of the other. So when one does a lot of body contemplation and a super practice, once the mind is calm, to turn to develop insight into the nature of the body, to see this body, rupa, as anicca dukkha anatta, is a very natural step, very uh, natural process. But as you probably find, you need to have this tranquility, the calm, the peace of mind to be able to look at the body with equanimity and to look at it for a long time. Because the body in its nature is not very nice to look at, especially if you're contemplating internal body organs and the blood and the bones or seeing yourself as a corpse. Um, you know, that's something you maybe can just turn your mind to do a little bit and then you think, well, it's too difficult, you stop. That's not laziness, it's just being honest that your mind is not yet ready to accept the truth. It's not clear enough, it's not peaceful enough to see the truth of the body. So that's okay, you just take little steps, do it for a few minutes and stop. Go back to the breath, go back to other practices, the metta or the breath. Then another time when you feel calm enough, you're interested, just turn to contemplate the body a little bit more. And just look at, see which body part holds your attention. Someone asked about the skull the other night, maybe that's for them, they like to look at the skull, visualize it, think about it, consider it. Go through your body, when you're feeling calm, just go through it piece by piece, part by part, and see is there any part that holds your attention? Or try and just imagine what would you look like when you die? If you've ever seen a dead body, somebody else's, a picture, or even somebody who you know has died and you've seen them in, in, in real reality, just imagine when you die, will you, how will you look? When you die, you look stiff, cold, the skin changes color. Sometimes it goes green and blue and things. Um, the whole look changes. So just stop and think, when I die, I'll look like that. I'll be like that. This body here will become like that. And just when you're feeling calm enough, just experiment with these kinds of perceptions. It's just images and thoughts around seeing the body as a corpse or just seeing parts of the body. Imagine you're doing a dissection of your own body. If you're able to, if you're calm enough, just say, okay, they've taken me down to Alfred Hospital now, I'm a corpse. They've put me on a table. The doctor's cut down the middle here and pulled the skin apart. Now the doctor's taking out my heart, there, lungs, liver, kidneys, spleen, intestines brain, opened up the muscles to see the arteries, the veins, the sinews. Just imagine you're doing a dissection on yourself. It's just something you're learning about your own body, this body here, what it looks like, what its nature is, what happens to a body as it ages, as it dies. Sometimes you can, you know, look at those sort of videos like the Body Works videos or the books and things that will help to just remind you or show you what a body looks like inside or what a corpse looks like. And these can give you uh, some visual stimulus. Or if you're very peaceful, sometimes your mind will just show you itself. And this isn't 
unusual. People, when they get very peaceful, sometimes have a vision, a nimitta, arise in their own consciousness. Out of the blue, it just comes up. Even people who've come here have had it before. Very peaceful, and they just see themselves as a corpse, or see a corpse, maybe it's them, maybe it's someone else, not sure. Sometimes see a body part. And the longer that you can hold your attention on that image, the more you'll learn, the more the mind will calm down, the more you will learn, and the more your perception towards your own body and the bodies of others will change. Now, super means unattractiveness, so it's a super sanya, the perception or the memory of unattractiveness. You're just bringing up, learning and establishing that clarity Whereas normally we're not seeing a super, we're just focused on super, the opposite, beauty. We're always trying to see the beauty in our bodies, in the bodies of others, in art, in photography, media, everything, in looking around at this world, we're always focused on beauty. That's our habit, but that's, you know, that's an imbalance of the mind, because beauty is always to cover over the ugliness or the unattractiveness and it's you know it's not true is it if you're always focused on beauty that's not true is it that's not the reality of, of a human body it has its ugly side its unattractive side so we have to find skillful ways to balance up our perception through meditation and even just contemplation in daily life you, you go and have a shower you know just ask yourself why do I shower well, because the body smells you get grease and sweat if you don't wash your hair, it gets greasy and smelly. We go to the toilet every day, many times a day. We have to urinate, defecate. You know, we remind yourself as you're doing all this, as it's happening, oh, this is the nature of a human body. It's like this. Obviously, if you're becoming very kind of tense or depressed doing it, well, stop. Just go back to something more uplifting, contemplate metta or the breath or the Buddha but when you're peaceful you're calm then that's the time to turn to contemplate the body and you want to be able to do it for you know a good period of time you can just stay with your own body the teachers I live with they always say you learn to go for a tour around your own body you know our mind we sit meditating here and we have a nice tour of Sri Lanka or Malaysia or Thailand, you know, we love to visualize and send our mind out to think about other places and things we want to do. Well, you know, once in a while stop that and have a tour around your own body. Just turn your attention inside, oh, what's this body like? What's, what are the different organs and parts of this body like? And you might find you become very calm, peaceful that way. That's the purpose of it. You become tranquil, the mind becomes bright, and it can see the true nature of the body, and then it lets go of some of its obsession with beauty and attachment to this body. It's easier in Asian countries, Asian Buddhist countries, because the culture often supports a super practice more than in the West because it's a very unusual concept in the West because we're so obsessed with beauty and looking good and all the you know the conventions and the regulations you know you very rarely see a dead body uh, 
and people think you're a bit strange if you wanted to see one. But say in Thailand, as a young monk there, I got to see many dead bodies. Whether it was a cremation in the monasteries, they bring bodies in to cremate and you often see them. You chant by them, you meditate next to them. Um, you can go to the hospital and they perform autopsies and they allow you to go and see them and study. There's one monastery I lived in, they used to bring dead bodies into the monastery, the bodies of people who had no relatives or criminals who nobody wanted their body. Nobody would do a cremation for them. They'd bring the body in and just leave it in the forest. Just dig a little grave, but wouldn't bury the body. They'd just leave it in an open grave. And then you could go and sit and meditate next to it. And you could watch a body degenerate from being complete and it would gradually bloat, it swells up, becomes all kind of pussy, and you get color changes in the skin and the skin starts to break and then you get flies coming and they lay their eggs and you get maggots and you can sit and watch a body full of maggots. It's all quivering with all the maggots and each maggot gets bigger, starts small, gets bigger. Obviously, you know, you can only do, if you're not ready for it, you just go and watch a little bit and then you go away again. But if you're ready, you just sit down and meditate and watch it happening in front of you. Oh, this guy's dead and this is what's happened. All kinds of unusual things happen. Like the very day Ajahn Chah died, I was sitting in the forest next to a corpse. I spent the whole night next to a corpse doing this contemplation. That's why I remember so clearly, because it was the, the, the night Ajahn Chah died. I wasn't with Ajahn Chah. And that corpse was a, an older man they brought in. And as the corpse, it, first of all, it bloated and the maggots came. And then all the organs were eaten. So animals would come and take away a little bit. And the body started to, uh, body parts disappeared and it started to dry out. And as it dried out, the sinews contract, shrink. So he was lying on the ground where I was sort of, I had a spot a few meters away. He's lying on the ground and then over the course of one day, his arm moved up. <laughs> yeah, at first I didn't know why. I said, oh, his arm's moved up like this. <laughs> it's just this skeleton arm with a little bit of flesh on it, all dry. I said, well, how come his arm has moved? So I went and asked someone, they said, oh, that's just normal, a body, when it dries out, the sinews contract, so legs come up, arms come up, they, they move position, so that's what happened. So for the next few nights, he just had one finger sort of pointing up, so like his arm had come up, he's lying down, his arm was there with a finger pointing up, so I was just sort of meditating with his arm in front of me. <laughs> If you have a sense of humor, it helps because then you don't get so scared. The Thai monks couldn't even sit there. It's too scary, all scared of ghosts. Uh, I was more scared of wild animals because it was in a forest which had wild animals, but everyone's different. I didn't see any ghosts. And uh, I just shared the merits of my meditation with the ghost. I said, well, if there is a ghost here, you're doing a lot of good by letting your body be here for the monks to learn. So I shared merits with the ghost, so hopefully he was happy. And we, at that time we had a 
a meditation retreat like this. Everybody came to stay in the monastery in tents. So a lot of people had never seen a corpse before. There were some people from overseas, some people from Bangkok. So one day I said, oh, come, 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 see a corpse. And a lot of people go, oh. But they were quite brave, and a lot of ladies as well as men. So I took them into the forest to see the corpse, and they all look at it. You know, never seen a corpse before, looking at it. There's one lady, maybe she has the perception of food very strongly in her mind. Because she looked at the liver and she said, wow, human liver, it looks, looks just like pig's liver. I bet it tastes sweet. <laughs> You're just thinking about that way. That's the way people are, aren't they? They start thinking about food because they see meat and bones. So if you contemplate a super, it certainly doesn't make you lazy. It wakes you up, energizes you. That's what you know, brings people to really see the Dhamma when they can see the unattractiveness of their body and they give up their obsession with it and their delusions about it. You know, the mind naturally withdraws detaches from the body, it becomes peaceful, it enters samadhi. And if you're com contemplating like that regularly, you know, the mind becomes very peaceful and the sense of sadness, sadness of having a human body, the suffering it goes through from birth, through aging, through sickness to death. You realize you know, how much suffering a human body brings with it. The mind naturally starts to detach from it and doesn't look on it as such a good thing as we used to think. Ajahn Chah always used to say, um, we volunteer to be born. We want to be born, you know, from our past life, it's our karma, we want to be born. When we die, you know, we don't want to die, do we? <laughs> Nobody wants to die. But we do die because our body stops functioning. But the mind wants life, so the mind goes on to another life. It's looking for another life, as it were. We all want more life. So we volunteer for birth. But what we don't accept is that we've also volunteered for aging, sickness and death. Because it comes as a package. You cannot separate birth from death. And we should really contemplate that because you've volunteered for everything that you experience with this body. Because you've volunteered for life, birth, you have to accept, mm, I'm also going to get old. You know, we don't like to think about that. Nobody thinks about, oh, what's it going to be like in old age? <laughs> we try to ignore that, don't we? We try to hopefully you know, put it off as long as possible. And death even more so. Nobody wants to think about their death. And yet, you've been born, so you're going to have to have aging and death, for sure. But we don't like to think about it. So we should stop and accept in our minds, oh, I did get born, I did want this, I'm going to have to die as well. And you're adjusting your perception towards this body, and you realize that ultimately it's not you. It goes back to the elements, it's four elements. What is the difference between rebirth and reincarnation? 
Does Buddha talk about reincarnation at all? Well, partly it's just the word, isn't it? Reincarnation is a different word from rebirth. Both of them are are words which people use in different ways, so it's a bit difficult sometimes, it's confusing. Some people even say rebirth is not the right word. They sometimes just say birth. You You have death from one life and then there's birth. Rebirth is already sort of, they said, mm, that's already sort of indicating something a little bit wrong. Reincarnation, even further from the truth, they say, because reincarnation in- implies something sort of fixed that keeps coming back, fixed, the same thing over and over again, uh, which doesn't seem to fit with the Buddhist teachings because the Buddha said, oh, everything is impermanent is not self, so there's nothing fixed that moves from one life to the next. And yet there's something, isn't there? (laughs) This is the tricky one. We had a previous life, previous existence, there'll be a future existence, but what moves from one to another? Actually nothing. It's just karma generating more, more of the five candors, you could say, more physical form and more mentality, more uh, feeling, perception, thought, sense consciousness. Uh, the continuity coming through, or the link, the continuity coming through karma. We make karma, and this is what keeps us going through this life and then into the next life. So there's nothing fixed that comes back. Say in other religions, and the Buddha did explain, because other religious beliefs often say, well, you're Sometimes you're on this sort of trans passage from being an, maybe a, a ghost through to being an animal, to being a human, to being in heaven realm, to being in Brahma realm, whatever. You're on some kind of pathway or they say you're always coming back as the same thing. So often they talk about that with caste system in India and places. You know, this life you're a Brahmin, next life you'll be a Brahmin. This life you're a squirrel, next life you'll be a squirrel. Whatever, you know, you're just reincarnated the same thing over and over again. That's one belief system. But Buddhism seems to go a bit deeper, more uh, gets to the root of the the problem or the the issue. And it says, well, really, there's nothing solid being transported from one life to the next. It's just a process of causes and conditions prompting the next moment of consciousness, the next moment of life. And that even at the moment of death, there's enough causes and conditions to prompt another birth. Unless one's purified one's mind of attachment, craving and attachment, so that's the mind of an arahant. There's no more causes and conditions to prompt another birth. When an arahant dies, that's it. We say, enter. Nibbana, there's no more birth, no more causes and conditions for more birth, so the mind has been purified. Other than that, every, every lifetime a being is born, they make karma, whether it's in a human realm or a heaven realm or a hell realm, ghost realm, animal realm, whatever the realm, there's always, as long as there's a birth, there's going to be a death following. And as long as the mind is not purified from its attachment, well, there'll be another birth following that death. 
And on and on it goes. What determines it all is karma, isn't it? The quality of the karma we make through our life, good and bad, the level of our mind. You know, the more good karma we make, the you could say the the higher the level of the mind, uh, the more spiritually evolved the mind, you could say, well, that will determine uh, a good rebirth. You say the mind goes on to uh, a good place. So we talk about um, in our chant, we say, we're aspiring that uh, we share merits for people to attain the threefold bliss. That's the three happy realms that one can be reborn into, uh, and the deathless, which means nibbana. A threefold bliss is what we call gama sukati bhumi. So it's the realm of sensual happiness. So. That includes human beings. So you would wish anybody you are sharing your merits with someone, you'd wish that they'd be reborn as a human or the lower heaven realms, which are also considered part of uh, the sensual realm, sensually happy realms, karma sukati. So you might wish for somebody to, when they die, to be reborn in a heaven realm or even higher than that, maybe in a Brahma realm especially those who have practiced uh, meditation and developed jhana, maybe reborn as a rupa, brahma, or a rupa, brahma. So in the rupa loka, the a rupa loka. So these are three blissful rebirths that you wish for your relatives and friends and people and all beings, as opposed to uh, rebirth in a realm of suffering, a ghost realm, hell realm. We are said to be reaping the results of good or bad karma. What role does wishing here or what happens to us? Also thought at special thoughts at special points in my life, like just before death. Well, I've sort of just been through that. Um, We are affected by the good and bad karma. Whether our good and bad karma is stored is in the heart, in the, in the mind, in consciousness. It's all making impressions there that are giving their results over and over again through our life and then into our next life. And so, you know, as one is preparing for the end of one's life, if you practice meditation is the best preparation because you can keep your mind calmer more peaceful uh, as you approach the end of your life. And that would be the best because that's maintaining the level of the mind, the happiness of the mind, the wholesome qualities of your mind, and that's what will be a very powerful karma that will lead into your next life. What happens though, often people don't make much good karma or they let things go and their mind is all over the place and they have a lot of suffering, unfortunately, stress, suffering, which only increases as they get older or face death because maybe there's a lot of worry and pain and anxiety, uh, which is not good. So 
the Buddha encouraged us not to wait until the last moment of our life to practice Dhamma. He said, practice Dhamma while you're young and healthy and strong. Listen to the Dhamma, practice the Dhamma, generate good karma which will keep bringing its results back to you through your life and will support you at the moment of death. And people talk about this. They say the good karma they've made through their life brings up all kinds of happiness and peace and joy as they're dying. And People have described their experience just as they're dying or just before. People have talked about sometimes the memories bringing up joy, memories of the good they've done in their life, thoughts about things or people who have meditated, how their mind goes to the meditation object and it calms down as they're dying. Very common for people who have meditated a lot. Or some people have images and visions arise as they're dying of where they're heading to. And if they've made a lot of good karma, then it's a very pleasant place and they get a lot of joy experiencing or seeing where they're destined for in their next life as they're dying. All of this is the result of good karma. This is why we practice, this is why we make good karma, because it supports us in this life and then into the next life. find it difficult when faced with loved one suffering, especially when it appears self-inflicted. Is there a particular way to interact with or help people who are suffering psychologically? Well, the Buddha always talked about how when we practice for ourselves, we're also improving our ability to help others difficult to help others if we haven't yet helped ourselves. It's important to get that understanding. So the more we practice the Dhamma, the more we learn and understand it, the more we develop our path, the wholesome karma, the good, good of generosity, virtuous behavior, meditation, developing insight. All of this is helping us to be more at peace, happier in ourselves. Then, when we turn to think of others, our mind is more settled and more happier. We can have a, a more positive effect on them. We can send our thoughts, thoughts of goodwill, share the merits of our practice with others. And also the wisdom, the understanding we gain from our own practice, we can share that with others by giving them good advice, or sometimes seeing what needs to be done to help that person because we've already been learning how to help ourselves first. That just depends on the situation. As some people, whatever we say or do, they don't seem to respond very well. They're not yet ready to listen to us or to, to respond to our help. What do we do then? Well, sometimes we have to just be willing to quietly meditate on our own for that person. We meditate and s s send thoughts of uh, loving kindness to that person, even though we can't really communicate with them very well. They won't listen, they won't respond. So we just do it as a meditation. We can always do that. 
or if you're able to, maybe you can find skillful ways to help that person to lead them to understand their own suffering better and how to remedy it, how to improve their state of mind. Maybe find ways to get them to do more skillful things. Practice generosity, try and keep precepts, practice mindfulness, reflect on their own lives so they can see some of their suffering more clearly and then start to let go of it. There's many things we can do, um, but the best way is always start with yourself first and then turn towards others. If we turn towards others first and we forget ourselves, things usually go wrong because we've neglected ourselves and we don't have much strength of mind or peace of mind or wisdom yet. Often we're not very good at helping others. So talked a lot tonight. That's the end of the questions. Can leave it there for now.